come with me on an exploration of self-discovery. On this podcast, we decipher what really matters as we unravel the chaos of day-to-day work to learn how to build an essential life. Welcome to the What's Essential podcast. Welcome, essentialists. I'm your host, Greg McEwen. Stop for a moment. Every time I say that, I need to stop myself, take a breath. Are you here right now? Is your focus on this podcast? Or is it roaming somewhere else to the past, to the future, to your worry, to your to-do list, to your phone? So, Whether you're simply browsing, talking to friends, or trying to stay focused in an important meeting, you can't seem to manage to hang on to your attention. No matter how hard you try, you're somewhere else. The consequences of that is that you miss out on 50% of your life, including the most important moments. Essentialism at the cutting edge of execution means asking one question. What's important now? The complication is that we often aren't paying attention in this moment at all, and the implication of that is that we can completely miss what matters. Now, the good news, according to a marvelous new book, is that there's nothing wrong with you. Your brain isn't broken. The human brain was built to be distractible. And even better news, according to Dr. Amishi Jha, you can train your brain to pay attention more effectively. And the best news is that by the end of this episode, you'll be able to do that in just 12 minutes a day. So I've invited Dr. Amishi Jha to be on the podcast today to help us make good on that promise. Uh, Dr. Jha, welcome to the What's Essential podcast. So great to be here. Your book, Peak Mind, uh, is just marvelous. It's been received superbly all over the world. You're an advisor to world leaders, no less. Uh, It's marvelous to have you. Can you just give us a sort of Reader's Digest version of your life? So birth till this moment, go. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. The fact that you said Reader's Digest puts us at a certain age range, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So, sure. Are you serious? Yes. Oh, yeah, happy to. So I um, let's start as far back as I want to go. I grew up uh, in suburbs of Chicago. I grew up thinking that I was going to uh, go to school and become a medical doctor. Mm. Realized very early on that (laughs) there's no way I want to spend my life in a hospital. I would be terrible at it. Mm. Uh, And that actually hospitals aren't a place where I can think and feel comfortable and uh, extend care like many other other friends of mine can do. It wasn't for you. Sorry? It wasn't for you. It was not for me, but I really lucked out because one of the um, volunteer opportunities I had was in a brain injury unit. Mm. And it was a, a formative experience where I got to actually spend time with a sort of a long-term recovery sort of aspect of the hospital, seeing people that had brain injury exercise their brain to a point where they were recovering, mm. improving, and changing it in a way that made their lives more functional, satisfying, better. Of course, they were starting from an injured brain, so it was very different. But that inspired uh, a lot of curiosity in my mind. I wanted to pursue neuroscience as a a field of study. And that little spark of 
you mean people can train their own brain to be more functional? How do we do that? That question remained with me uh, throughout my neuroscience studies and even throughout my personal life. Um, when I found myself, to fast forward a little bit, going through pursuing those studies and mm-hmm. successfully landing essentially a dream job, um, being a professor at an Ivy League institution, fabulous place, setting up my own lab, being married to the love of my life and and having a beautiful young baby, um, where an ironic thing happened to me, which is that at that point, I developed expertise in the neuroscience of attention. And one of my draws to the field of attention is that attention ends up being a brain function as well. I'm sure we'll talk about that recalibrates the way the rest of the brain operates. It really tips the scale in favor of whatever it is that you're paying attention to. And so it was sort of that notion of not only can we change the brain, but if you're going to change the brain, you probably want to work with a system that tends to recalibrate the way the brain functions. So that was definitely part of my professional life, what research studies we were doing in the lab, et cetera. But I, I ended upon this ironic moment where uh, because of now I look back on it, the stresses and strains of of new parenthood, of having a spouse that was in grad school, of buying a hundred-year-old fixer-upper, starting a new job, I lost access to my own attention. I became really distractible to the point where I didn't think I was functional. And I was certainly not enjoying my life anymore. I was Mm -hmm. missing time with the most precious people in my life. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. I study attention. Come on, just figure it out. Go read the literature, solve this problem. And I came up empty. You know, Mm -hmm. the things I normally did, which is sort of... uh, dig my heels into the expertise and and study my way through this problem space, there was nothing there. Hmm. And so the search became more perplexing. And through that process of of essentially searching and trying to open up, um, I came upon one particular way of training the mind that that I wanted to bring to modern neuroscience research, but was actually quite an ancient approach, which was mindfulness meditation training. And the kind of further irony is that I'm an Indian woman. I mean, I'd heard about meditation since I was, you know, probably not even walking and talking. It was part of the landscape of my family life. And I had rejected it for a variety of reasons. So now I found myself in a position where not only was I curious and started practicing, uh, but I was trying to overcome my own skepticism regarding the whole thing. Ends up, we tried many different things in the lab and mindfulness training ended up being one of the most successful ways to train attention. So I didn't have to lean on my own word for it, even though I did personally benefit. We could bring it to test uh, through objective metrics. And this sort of landed me in a position where I knew I was not alone. I could not have been the only person who spent their life trying to get the peak uh, or pinnacle of success, achieved it, and then found out, I can't, I can't live this life. I'm missing it, um, which made me very curious to start working with populations where attention was consequential. People like military service members, leaders, business and medical professionals, elite athletes, there's no room for lapsing. And frankly, that's all of us. We need to be there for the moments that, like you said earlier, matter. And often we don't know how. So uh, that has been sort of the point of passion of my more recent life to bring you closer to the present moment. And that's what I've been pursuing in our in the work in my lab and you know, continuing my own practice journey uh, uh, kind of in my private life. 
Thank you so much for that context. So helpful. So impressive what you've really been able to go and do. I mean, we're talking about the PhD at the University of California, Davis, postdoctoral training, uh, the Brain Imaging and Analysis Center at Duke University, uh, you know, and we could go on. I mean, it's impressive work. You've done impressive work with impressive people. You also now have this, let's say, well, you could have the problem of the curse of knowledge. You've got all of these examples and ideas. You've done the research for the book, everything. So my next question is a tough one, okay. which is if you, you know, if people listening to this could only do one thing to make it immediately easier to pay attention to what matters most, what would that be? Mm. Such an essentialist question. <laughs> I'm going to give an answer that will sound easy, but will people learn will be a journey to implement. I love and it. The one thing, the one thing that I would recommend people doing to get better access to their their own attention, to own their attention in some ways, is to pay attention to it. So, pay attention to your attention. Make it the focus of what you are monitoring in your life and things will start shifting. Hmm. Now, I hope that made I mean, that well, it makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You're saying it's a meta answer, but you're saying, yeah. look, if, if the thing to do is to start becoming aware of what you are giving your awareness to. Correct. Stand aside yeah. and look at yourself and say, okay, where is your mind being pulled to and what state is it in and how distracted is it and where is it being focused? So, I mean, is it as simple? Like, give me that in terms of like a very specific mental trick or tool that I could use going forward, you know, repeatedly. What, what, what does that little trick look like? Well, I would say here's the, the thing about the brain. Uh, a simple trick probably won't work because mm. it could be one and done. Mm. And what we need to do is really shift our notion of how the brain functions to more like the rest of the body. I mean, if I, if I ask you now, you know, Greg, is it the case that you need to be exercising in a, in a regular, systematic, daily fashion for you to benefit for your physical health? Right. Of course. Yes. We've you been, would never say, what's the one thing I can do for physical exercise that's going to change my body forever? We'd never say that because we now understand that's not the way bodies function. So I just want to kind of put that back uh, to say, uh, I wish there was one thing I could give you that uh, one's, one and done would be sufficient. But what I would suggest instead is to take this approach of a journey that begins with a simple practice that you do repeatedly in the same way you might do go from a couch to 5k sure. and then decide you're going to train for a 10k and then a, you know, whatever, half marathon, a marathon. But the journey begins by taking those first steps. For sure. And, and that really is the spirit of the question I'm asking. So, yeah. so what is, what would you say, you know, the book outlines a series of practices, but what is it? What is one practice that you would say, what's that first couch to, yeah. what's the Absolutely. first one you'd recommend? Right. Great, great question. And it ends up that um, the reason that mindfulness ended up joining my lab's kind of repertoire of, of tools we wanted to offer is because it itself so tightly connects with what we know about the brain science of attention. So the practice, I'm going to first describe what, what, what it looks like, and yes, then please. let's talk about why it could be beneficial, because uh, understanding that it's, it's doing something kind of 
profound um, in terms of exercising multiple systems of brain systems of attention makes the workout even all that more interesting and compelling. But in the spirit of this, pay attention to your attention uh, as the kind of nugget of advice that I would give, Mm -hmm. saying it to ourselves a few times a day, it seems like it could work, but we are so prone to not paying attention to what's going on. In fact, as you mentioned, 50% of our waking moments, the tendency of the mind will be to wander away from what's going on right now. And it's not just when the thing going on right now is boring. I mean, neurosurgeons talk about wandering away during brain surgery. Nobody would say brain surgery is not consequential or boring. So it's such a prominent default of the way the brain functions that simply providing the instruction alone won't work. Mm -hmm. So we do want to think about training the brain through this practice I'll talk about in a moment um, so that the defaults start shifting. So that we don't need to actively, you know, only look at the post-it note that we might say that, hey, pay attention to your attention. It arises in our mind to do that, to have what we call meta-awareness. And so the the instruction, and I call it the find your flashlight practice Mm. in the book, Mm -hmm. which is actually find your focus. And I do that um, (laughs) because it's asking that same of people, where the heck are you? And how do we cultivate it? So the way somebody would uh, who wants to do this, and like you said, we want to build up to something like 12 minutes a day. But the way you can start is very simple and very um, straightforward to understand, sometimes hard to do. So just find a comfortable spot that tends to be supportive of doing something that is uh, going to be requiring quiet and attention. Um, it doesn't always have to be in a quiet spot, but we can begin there to kind of advantage ourselves. And we begin by paying attention to something there's always with us that we don't have to actively put effort into doing most of the time um, and is very portable. We can we take it with us wherever we go and nobody needs to know about it. And it's low tech, which is our breath. Right. The breath is such an easy anchor to have. And so the instruction is begin by in this quiet place taking sort of this, this um, kind of dignified and alert posture because you're now going to engage in an activity that is promoting your attention. In the same way, if you went to the gym, you'd wear the appropriate clothing. Uh, you'd set the stage to advantage yourself. And then the first step is essentially notice your body breathing. You're not, you're not even attempting to breathe. You are being breathed, thankfully, through our basic neurobiology that just allows us to do this without a lot of effort. If we had to pay attention to, in order to breathe, we'd probably all be dead because we'll get distracted. That's funny. So. We notice our body breathing. And then the first formal step is select something that's vivid, tied to your sensory experience of breathing, vivid breath-related sensation. Could be the coolness of air moving in and out of your nostrils or whatever it is for you in your body. But pick something in particular and then take your attention, and I call it sort of the flashlight of your attention, and direct it toward that breath-related sensation. So essentially, the first formal step is focus. Focus on those breath-related sensations. That's your anchor for the rest of the time we do this, whether it's 30 seconds or 12 minutes or more. Focus on breath-related sensations. Step two, notice as you're doing this, you know the goal is focus on breath-related sensations. Step two, notice where are you right now? Is your flashlight actually on the breath? Did your focus drift away? So second step, notice 
And you're going to do this in an ongoing fashion too, as you're sitting quietly, anchoring on the breath, noticing, oh, there I go. I'm thinking about something else. All you do in the na- that moment when you notice your mind has wandered away from breath-related sensations, redirect it back. So it's essentially a three-step process. Focus, notice, and redirect. And in some sense, a lot of the work we do with military colleagues, they'll say, oh, you gave me a push-up. You gave me a push-up for the mind. Mm-hmm. In the same way, it's so foundational for my physical health to do the, a push-up in the body. I have a, a, a friend. He's an executive, a uh, very impressive individual, and he found himself you know, highly successful on paper and in reality, family, everything, friends too. But he found himself more and more anxious. And it reminds me of what you said before. It's the spirit of success was supposed to feel better than this. And so he started down his own journey into mindfulness and meditation. And he read, you know, read pretty broadly, let's say. But his practice began this way. Every time he would sit down at his desk, that was his trigger for taking three simple but deep breaths in and out and to pay attention to it. That was how the practice began. And that was the habit that became the ritual. And now, you know, if he's going to, if he's meeting someone for lunch and they're late or something, instead of being on his phone or doing something, he'll just sit there and perhaps meditate now as long as maybe half an hour. And what that looks like in development for him is that uh, he has power in his presence. Mm-hmm. Like there's, of course, for him, he's he has changed his experience. He finds more satisfaction in the experience of his life because he is experiencing it. Yeah. But for me, sitting down with him, he's all there, and there's power there, and and there's something. Uh, it's it is intangible, but it is discernible that he has it. Your thoughts? Absolutely, and I love that. Uh, sort of anchoring on, uh, you know, the number three is the number of, of breaths to take. And that's a wonderful thing to do. Uh, sometimes we'll call it a moment to arrive where if you're doing any kind of transition activity, um, my, I'm on the board of this wonderful foundation called the Search Inside Yourself Institute. And, you know, it was, it was born at Google and they would do this at the beginning of meetings, which I love. So whatever it is that you want to do, we sometimes call it the stop practice where you stop what you're doing. You take a breath, you observe, and you proceed. I think those anchoring activities are wonderful. What you described is the phenomenology of the result in your experience interacting with him and in his presence is what we're going for. We're not doing it to become Olympic-level breath followers. Nobody cares, right? We're using the breath in this way because we want to be able to cultivate the core qualities of attention that engaging in these exercises really promote. And so maybe this is where I can kind of break it down by what I mean by that, mm-hmm. um, because it ends up that the three-step process that I described, focus, notice, redirect, taps into three distinct brain systems. Um, and actually, the fourth would be a brain system involved in mind-wandering, going away from the task at hand. Mm. So even that word flashlight that I described is describing this brain system sometimes called the orienting system, where it's about sort of directing our resources of mind willfully and shining a flashlight, just like you would in a darkened room, wherever you direct those focusing resources, you get crisper, clearer information. Or as I described, the noticing is the second step. 
formally call the alerting system. We're, we're alert, we're broad, we're vigilant to what is occurring in this moment, situationally aware, if you will. But the situation in this case is not just the external environment, but the situation in our mind as well. So the alerting system also is a very, very important brain system. Uh, very different than the flashlight. It's not about narrowing and pointing, but being observational and receptive. And then this third bit about redirecting is tapping into something called executive control, where the brain system of attention is to ensure that goals are being held and actions are aligned with those goals. So focus, notice, redirect are tied to orienting, alerting, and executive control as these formal brain systems. Now, when we take those collectively as attention, the thing that is really important to realize, and it goes back to the question or the comment you made regarding your friend, what does attention actually fuel? What do you use those brain systems and subsystems for? You use them for literally every major thing you do as a human being, from thinking, following a train of thought, for example, you need that flashlight to even hyperlink from one concept to the next. Or feeling, we need to actually be aware of the internal milieu in terms of our, our emotions uh, and be able to regulate the emotions so that they're appropriate, right? I mean, to be able to ensure that we're either um, not overreacting or not holding in more than we should. Mm. So thinking, feeling, and then I would say connecting, which really ties into what you were saying regarding your friend. This is where we take our attentional flashlight or floodlight, as I call the alerting system or executive control, and we now devote this resource in our engagement with other people so that they become the object of our focus or they are part of the external environment that we are receptive to um, so that our goals are regarding the shared experience of understanding each other, leading or communicating. So when people engage in that practice of, of a mindfulness of breath practice, for example, what you gain is more attentional fuel because you're exercising all three of those systems of attention. You're sort of dampening down this other brain network that's tied to mind wandering or off task thoughts that really allow for the wandering away. That's dialed down. Mm -hmm. So more attention, less distractibility from the internal um, environment. And then the power to devote it toward those that you interact, interact with. And it's palpable. When you feel an attentive leader, when you're in the presence of an attentive leader, you feel it. When you yourself feel fully fueled up in terms of your attention, that sense of agency and success, fulfillment and ease are what arise in us. And now let's just take a moment for an ad break. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience, with every business that I have built, 
including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now, back to our conversation. There's an amazing story I came across when I was doing research for my most recent book, Effortless. And it's about a young man, maybe 16 years old, who goes to the doctors. Uh, he has some sort of rash on his back. He's embarrassed about it. He's self, you know, he's, he's self-conscious. He goes to the doctor. The doctor is completely present. Not in some strange way and certainly counter-cultural in the medical field, not over there on a computer when he's barking questions, present. The whole conversation, the engagement is 10, 15 minutes, not more. It turns out to be nothing very serious and he solves the immediate problem easily. However, the young man went away with a sort of residue of the encounter. It stayed with him. That, that, that that doctor was like, he saw me, he was there, he was present and there was power in it. And as it turns out, it stayed with him all the way through his own decision to become a doctor, all the way through medical school. And now as a doctor, he tries to give that gift to the patients that he's now trying to work with. Is it possible that a few minutes of total uh, connection, of total presence is so powerful, it could change a life. I mean, I'm not saying every interaction can or does, but there's something disproportionately impactful, at least in my estimation, for that kind of presence that you're describing. Your thoughts? Absolutely. I think that when we are fully fueled up with our attention and we devote that resource, that precious, it's the most precious resource in some sense that we have to give. And when we devote it or direct it toward another individual, it has extremely consequential ripples. It could be in that moment or beyond. I mean, this sounds like an exceptional case, but even in that moment, if the physician was not attending, you know, we often talk about an attending physician, but this right. physician was actually paying attention. Right. If that had not happened, and thankfully this person was not having a serious issue, but things get missed, medical errors occur, you're left feeling disregarded. Your most precious thing, your body, your mind, your being is disregarded. And it can be absolutely consequential. It brings to mind another example from, uh, from actually that I describe in Peak Mind, where 
a leader, a military leader's ability to do exactly what you just said in a very different setting had very positive and consequential ripples. Yes, I love this uh, one. This, Go ahead. Yeah, this was a, um, a, a now somebody who's become a, a dear friend and, and of course, continued colleague, um, a three-star general, uh, General Walter Pyatt, who uh, learned about mindfulness through a research study that my lab did several years prior. And then conveyed this story to me after he returned back from his most recent deployment to Iraq. And this was after, um, you know, Iraq essentially had, um, you know, let's put in quotes, defeated ISIS. Mm -hmm. And what was happening is that a lot of the different factions that had banded together with a common enemy now were were experiencing a lot of infighting and fraying and and growing tensions. Um, And of course, a lot of animosity toward the U.S. And in that context, uh, General Pyatt was there to, as the as the head of the the International Land Force, um, there to have a conversation with three leaders from three different cultural groups, three different religions, and they were very very upset. And so the 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 interaction became extremely conflictual. They were unhappy with uh, each other, but they were definitely unhappy with the U.S. And he decided that he was going to apply all that he knew about his own from his own mindfulness practice to this moment he was going to fully arrive and the way he was going to arrive and benefit um his ability to understand what's going on was by fully paying attention in Mm -hmm. this case fully listening Mm -hmm. and not just hearing but really listening and so he sat there in this attentive mode in the same way it sounds like the physician in the story you described listening with precise clarity of what was coming in uh, from each of the groups, seeing them, acknowledging them without saying much at all. When it was his turn to speak, he was able to fully integrate and and say back what he had heard to the point at which each of those leaders said, you really heard us. Mm -hmm. We feel seen. And it ended with, we can work with you. We can continue to work with you, and it was very touching because what he what what he told me was that um, in that uh, group was a, um, a Muslim cleric who had prayer beads around his wrist, and at the end of that interaction, he took off those beads and handed them to General Pyatt with the uh, confidence to say, "With this type of person that you are in orientation toward us, we will be able to work together." I mean, that could potentially be the seeds of peace. Uh, and certainly the right kind of communication that needs to happen in order to support peace. So I absolutely love the medical example you gave. And this is a very different kind of context that shows, again, the power of paying attention. Well, the the life, you know, life and death type stakes that if you're missing 50% of the information, uh, and, and of course, I'm quoting that directly from, from, from your book, it's not my idea, uh, it, then then you're going to miss lots of things that matter. And, and, and there's, you know, you, you have a marvelous chapter specifically about uh, applying these ideas to interactions and relationships. I, I don't know that you would frame it this way, but do you, do you feel like there's a push-up equivalent for listening? You know, is there, is there a way to you know, a specific way to apply the same push-up technique uh, for for when you're actually in interacting with other people? If so, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, in some sense, it's a pretty straightforward translation because if the three steps are focus, notice, and redirect, 
Now the target is not your breath-related sensations, but the other person. And so the focusing is on what you're hearing, comprehending, and noticing when you're when you when the internal chatter is competing with what's being heard, or you're forming stories or interpretations that are not getting the raw data of what's being heard. So the noticing again is not simply that you're noticing the words, but noticing where your own mind is coming up against those words, uh, where it's not serving you. And then the redirecting is when that happens, get back to actually listening in this very much non-evaluative, non-judgmental and um, present-centered way to the other person. What's the trigger back to focusing? If you're if you're in the middle of a conversation, is it simply noticing, oh, I am I'm thinking about other things? It's like how do you how do you to, to your earlier point, how do you remember to pay attention? when the whole problem is you're not paying attention you know like is it just through is it just through the push up or is it is there some other th- mechanism that would help you know help us come back to the person we're talking to come back to this moment when you formally uh, do these practices with regularity and and it doesn't have to be that long every day you start being able to kind of instill this mindset in terms of everything you do, whether it's reading an email or uh, driving to work or walking down the street, all of a sudden it's like, where am I right now? What am I doing right now? Sometimes it's, I don't have anything to focus on. I'm going to let my mind go wherever it wants. Other times it's, oh my goodness, I got through a 20 minute drive and I have no idea what occurred. So Mm -hmm. the insight becomes more of a, acknowledgement of when you're not present, when you are missing things. And that sort of motivates wanting to do with more regularity. Right now, I would say the default that we live by is we show up when we, when we know we have missed something. Mm. So think about the last time you read a book, you know, you get to the bottom of a page of no idea and you're like, oh, I was not paying attention. What cued you is that getting to the bottom of the page, an external force cued you to say, no, go back. Or in the middle of a conversation, somebody's saying, hello, are you listening to me? It's a pretty salient example of, yes. wow, I am not acting in a way that is receptive to what's being heard. In some sense, that means we've pushed it too far. Yes. We've already checked out so much that it takes that salient feedback for us to get back on track. But the more we practice, the more attuned we get to our moment-to-moment experience. It might start with something like, man, I'm ruminating a lot on that conversation I just had. Noticing what is arising, spontaneously just noticing more and more what's arising. And then being able to say to yourself, I have a choice I can make. I can become blind to it again and go back to ruminating, or maybe there's something else I can do. So that's kind of one answer is that there will be more more presence. The other thing that that you can do, and you mentioned, you know, in the book, I have multiple practices. So this focusing, noticing, redirect is one aspect of it. But there are other insights we can gain to help us return back with more regularity um, and without a lot of external prompting, like just remembering the phrase that is, thoughts are not facts. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's sort of like all of a sudden, you know, you have some kind of uh, view on something and you're like, or you've come up with some catastrophic outcome and maybe just the little bit of a reminder that says, I made that whole thing up. I don't really know what's going to happen in the next moment. It, and being able to then distance yourself from what's going on is another another way in which we can practice paying attention differently. 
So my answer is not going to be a quick fix. It's going to be train yourself and check it out. Check to see what happens in your own life. Mm -hmm. It's not what you'd think uh, because you end up showing up in a way that feels much more um, alive. I mean, I would say I felt more embodied after practicing mindfulness. Mm -hmm. I didn't know I wasn't embodied before. So it's a different kind of quality that you can cultivate. And as you mentioned, when people practice this, it's palpable when we experience time with them. Yes, I'm, I'm curious about that early warning. It's like, it's like what's the, how to cultivate the early warning before, like the early warning signal, before the person says, are you listening to me? Before the person leaves, okay, forget it. You know, I can tell you're not here. Before <laughs> we've read two pages in the book and we haven't been there. But, you know, it's, the, it's how soon, I suppose that's a pretty good check on the current level of our attention muscle, the, the, yeah. the, the current level that we are on in our pursuit to have a peak mind is how quickly we're going to be aware that we're not being aware. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. I was telling you that I, um, I taught my class today, and, and it's an undergraduate course, They've been practicing mindfulness practices for just a couple of weeks now. And one of the students said something that I thought was so interesting. And we had a good discussion about it. She said, since I started practicing uh, mindfulness, I'm noticing I might, I'm mind wandering more now. Is that a contraindication of mindfulness practice that I'm mind wandering more? Because <laughs> it just feels like there's a lot more mind wandering happening. And then, you know, without me even having to say much, another student said, could it be that you're noticing it more often? And for I was sure. like, that's right, right? So as we become more finely tuned up, our own tendency to check out, we check into. And then all of a sudden, we can do something about it. Yeah, there are sort of two kinds of people, people who are mind-wandering all the time, and then there are the people who know they are mind-wandering all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, those are categorically different people. That's just so. Frankly, right? It's just so, yeah. because because if you as soon as you become more aware of it, in that moment, I mean, it's a very Zen kind of idea. In the very moment of being aware of it, you're not, you're not mind wandering anymore. You're aware of it. You're in that present moment, and and it's it can be as quick as that. I think is part of what you're saying. Uh, I, you know, go ahead. Was there more? Um, no, I, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I would like to put to you, uh, because it's a What's Essential podcast, a a rapid fire round of questions that have no business being rapid fire questions because they're <laughs> quite intense. Oh, great! Are you game? I'm game. You're game. You've been through harder <laughs> things than this. Here's the first question: What's most essential to you? In one word, go. First thought. Family. Why is that so important to you in one sentence? It's meaning of my life. It's what makes me feel fulfilled, the connections I have. That's a beautiful answer. What have you said yes to so far in your life that you most regret? You're not allowed to say that you don't have regrets. Ah. Disregarding myself. What does what does that mean for you? What's the practical? Yeah, not uh, paying attention to when uh, it's it's tied to everything we're talking about. Not paying attention to my body when my body or my mind was saying 
we're not, this is not going to go well. So, and then just pushing past that and resulting in physical pain or psychological angst, disregarding myself would be the way. Ignoring, ignoring the, the bings. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let's not do this. This is not the right way. Let's not go there. Let's not. Stop it. I'm I'm on a ballistic path to what I'm doing. Just (laughs) disregarding. Stop it. I'm I'm going forward. I love that. We can all relate to that. Uh, What have you said no to, specifically a concrete example that you're most pleased about? Believing other people's versions of what it takes to be successful. Ooh, what a good answer. (laughs) What does that mean? You mean... Do you mean because you've, I'm reading stories into this, but that you've said, no, I am going to have a family, be successful in my family and have a profession. Is that what you mean or what, what does it mean? Or really more specifically, don't waste your time studying mindfulness. It's a career suicide. Nobody's ever going to be interested in this topic. It's never going to be something people take seriously. Oh, that's very interesting. So you literally were given advice of like, don't even go there. Don't even go there. But yeah. you did. Yeah. So that's Said interesting. Nope. You knew you <laughs> knew there was something there that you that you should follow. What is something essential for you that used to be really hard, but you've made relatively effortless? Something essential that used to be hard. Trusting my own judgment. Hmm. I like it. What's something non-essential that is unimportant to you that you're over-investing in right now? <laughs> oh, how long of a list do I get to have? <laughs> um, I would say um, overcoming uh, a lot of programming that says uh, that women have to take care of other people when really it's not my job to take care of people in that way that are mm-hmm. my family members. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, like you're, this committee needs somebody. You got to do it. It's your responsibility. It's like tapping into the programming that I know is not serving me in this moment. Mm-hmm. I love it. Uh, what's something essential to you, very important to you that you're under investing in right now in your life? Oh, same thing. Things earlier, my physical wellness. Mm-hmm. It's the first thing to go. That's my experience. It's my experience in my own life. It's my experience in having, you know, talked to maybe asked that question a few times to people. Um, What is something you could do in 10 minutes or less, like literally post this conversation in 10 minutes to make it easier to make progress on whatever area of physical health you're, you know, you're, you're wanting to work on? What can you do in 10 minutes, a little microburst? Uh, it could even be as simple as like, call up the trainer that I've been wanting to hire to help me work out. I mean, it's, yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Take action. Uh, 10 minutes, 10 minute microburst. Actually, I have, schedule. 10, more, I have 10 more, 10 more, nine more minutes after I make the call. Yeah, that's what it is. Nine more minutes left. And that, that's a perfectly good thing. 10 minutes is the max, right? It's just, it's just, just, just to start. Sometimes the start yeah. is the thing we, we overcomplicate it. We think, oh, I got to do all of this. And it's like, no, everything is actually just like the breath. It's that, you Absolutely. know, it only happens in the now. You know, I came across some terrific research that said that, um, that the now lasts about two and a half seconds. Mm-hmm. 
and, and of course, it can be measured in various ways. But that idea that all you ever have is that that little moment. So that means all action must also inevitably be that simple too. You know, that, that there's a single action. It's actually pick up your phone, the next action, look for that person's number, press the button. You know, like to, to break them down into such tiny pieces, I think can be helpful in breaking these things apart. Well, thank you for being game for that uh, for that essential Absolutely. round, the essential round. Uh, and thank you ever so much for coming onto the show and helping us to be able to begin our journeys, renew our journeys towards creating peak mind so that we can focus on what's important now. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. We've come to that time again. It is the end of the show. And if you found value in this episode, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. The first five people to write a review of this episode will receive a copy of Peak Mind. So you just send a photo of your review to info at gregmcewen.com. That is I-N-F-O at G-R-E-G-M-C-K-E-O-W-N.com. And remember... Give, it, give us the last word here. What, what's one key line you want everyone to remember? Pay attention like your life depends on it, because it does. That's exactly the one I wanted you to say. So everybody, take a deep breath. Get back to your breath. Do the mental push-up. Enjoy this week. Be present in it. And I'll see you next week for another episode of the What's Essential Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.